How you doing? That looks like it hurts. Yep, it does. Hurts less than it did, but it hurts more than it should. So I'm in that right now, like, hmm. Uh, so rotator cuff surgery, a lot of people have had it done. I had mine done, and I'm going to survive. So it's just day by day. It's the only time in my life that I'm like, man, I wish time went faster. Like, I'm not supposed to do anything. So uh, for some people, that may seem enjoyable. It was for about two days. And now I'm just going stir crazy. So, uh, but this too shall pass. Uh, two quick things. Tonight, what's happening tonight? Game changers. So even though I slept like 15 minutes last night, I'm still going to game changers tonight. That's how important it is. I'm grabbing my son. We're coming to it. Uh, great opportunity. So men, if you're not signed up, get signed up. Come tonight, 6 o'clock, game changers. Uh, announcement number two. I had uh, three people like in succession contact me yesterday morning saying, hey, do you need some money or some gift cards? So I don't know if you heard about this scam, but somehow they hack in, figure out contact, they'll send a text message or an email message, it appears it's coming from me or one of the other pastors here, and then it's always like, hey, can you do me a big favor? I'm really busy. Oh, what do you need? I need a bunch of uh, Apple gift cards. That no one at Edgewater on staff will ask you for gift cards, will ask you for anything like that. If somebody at Edgewater does something like that, they will no longer work at Edgewater, okay? So I don't, it's a really, really, it, it's, you know, worldwide, but it's not coming from us. If you have a doubt, contact someone that you know at Edgewater, contact me, get my real email address, ask me. Don't respond to these people, okay? Thank you. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this body. I thank you that you are good and you always do what's good. I pray this morning that we would know how as a community of faith, we are to respond to your goodness. What that's supposed to create in us, the kind of character it's supposed to make in us. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen. Anyone here remember COVID-19? Okay. Was that hard? Yeah, it's gonna be studied for years. There will be PhD dissertations on this last little season, like, okay, what happened, right? So hard, but was it hard for everybody? Hmm, no. Amazon saw their profits, not revenue, their profits increase 220%. In 2020, just that first like nine months of COVID, in 2020, Jeff Bezos and the four Walmart heirs saw their net worth increase $116 billion one year, right? Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, they were making, those three companies, they were making $65,000 a minute during COVID. That is $93.6 million a day during COVID. That's profits. That's not revenue. That's profits. Berkshire Hathaway, 
during the first six months of COVID, $56 billion. Not bad for Warren Buffett. I go on and on and on and on. How about small businesses? How'd they do? Well, World Economic Forum, an outside agency, looked at the United States during COVID and they said 34% of small businesses went out, went bankrupt during COVID. What's the story right there? Big got bigger and they ate the little, right? Now, why is that? Because that's world history. That's the way the world works. That's the way things have always been and it's not new. So we're in Nehemiah chapter five and what we're gonna see in Nehemiah chapter five is that same thing. Happening in God's city, in Jerusalem, with God's people and it's not personal and it's not illegal but it is not right. Okay, so if you're new, um, my name is Matt Heverly. I'm one of the pastors here. And I took off a couple of weeks for surgery. And we, prior to that, we're doing the book of Nehemiah. And we're just charging through this book. And Nehemiah, if you don't know, is this man who is hyper successful. He's got prestige. He's got power. He's got money. He is chief of staff of the most powerful empire on earth at the time, the Persians. Right? He is the right-hand man of King Artaxerxes. He lives in the palace at Susan. That'd be like living at the Marriott in Maui. He's got it made. He eats the king's meat. He drinks the king's wine. He takes selfies with Artaxerxes. Yo, he's got hashtag blessed on his Instagram account. He's got it made. And then one day, some people come to Susan that had just been in Jerusalem. And he says, hey, how is it going in Jerusalem? And the report is bad. The walls are broken. The gates are burned. God's people are in trouble. Crime is rampant. Unemployment is everywhere. There's no police. The government's corrupt. And so Nehemiah hears this, weeps, prays, and decides he is going to leverage everything God has entrusted to him to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And that's the story. And it goes good for a while, but then all of a sudden, there's an attack. Because when God's people act, Satan reacts. And these two guys are used by Satan, Sambalat and Tobiah. They're a couple of bullies. And they come at Nehemiah time and time again. But in chapter five, we meet the third enemy. And it's a different kind of enemy. It's a triple threat. It might be the worst enemy of all, and it's threatening to doom the good work that Nehemiah has. And so in chapter five, it's this. We see how a godly leader responds to this kind of attack. And I just titled this message, Generous Justice. So let's check it out. Nehemiah chapter five, verse one. I just call this first little five verses, replay, verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax 
on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Here's what's happening. There's a famine. And the famine is so bad, what's happening is families are gonna have to sell their homes, sell their fields, sell their vineyards, And it got even worse because taxes were being increased there. 87,000 IRS agents were going around collecting more taxes. And so taxes were outrageous and they didn't have anything else to sell or anything else to mortgage, so then they had to sell their kids. Stop for a minute. Imagine mom, dad, grandpa, grandma. What would it take for you to sell a daughter a granddaughter into slavery? How desperate would times have to be? How bad would it be, right? Well, at least they'll be able to eat there. That's how bad things were. And what's the cause of it? There's a famine. And why is there a famine? A lot of commentaries say that this was a human-caused famine. What was happening is there, there need to be workers to build the wall and rebuild the city. And so instead of out there farming and taking care of their fields and their vineyards, these guys had said, well, there's a mission right now and we gotta put that on pause for a second and we gotta go do God's will over here and we gotta rebuild this. But when you're not farming, you don't have money. You can't pay your mortgages. You can't pay your taxes. So things get harder and harder and eventually you're selling your kids. And guess who they sold, enslaved their kids to? Their Jewish brothers, family. The one group that they would have said, oh, they'll understand. They'll see what we're doing. They'll see the mission. They know Jerusalem has to rebuild. They'll understand, right? They'll get it. They'll give us a little grace because we're building the wall. We're giving up farming to build the wall. But when the powerful had a choice between cash And their countrymen, guess who they chose? Cash. We'll use this hard time to make some money. You ever been hurt by family? Ever had family choose cash over you? Ever had a church hurt you? Chose the wrong thing? The people that you thought would understand, the people you thought were close to you, they end up choosing money over you? Because it's the way the world works. And it's the wives, it says, the wives were crying out. Why is it the wives that are crying out? Because they're the ones that are at home trying to feed their kids. They're the ones that see it, see the desperation and the starvation, right? And these aren't wives complaining that T-bone is expensive or they can't get organic food anymore or their favorite dressing, gluten-free from Trader Joe's got canceled. These are people saying, we don't have any flour or oil to make a pancake. We've got nothing. Our kids are dying. And most likely it's human cost. And it's not new. That's the way the world works. There's been human caused famines throughout history. Do you know that? I didn't really know about this till 2014. Had a class up at 
seminary at Western, sat down next to this guy, didn't know him, introduced myself. He starts talking, and I notice Alex has an accent. And I'm like, hey, are you from Russia? And he got mad. No, I'm not from Russia. I am from the Ukraine. I'm like, whoa, dude, calm down. All right, no problem. He's like, you don't understand. My grandparents died because of Russia. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, have you heard of the Holodomor? I said, no. He said, in 1933, Stalin, the ruler of Russia, of the USSR, caused a human famine in the Ukraine that killed 12 million of my countrymen. And we'll never forget that. Sure enough, that's what happened. It got so bad that the USSR put these signs up across all the Ukraine that said this, it is our barbarous act to eat your children. That's how brutal it got. Human caused famine. And you see the desperation of the men in verse five. They're desperate, right? We have no power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Man, I feel sorry for these men. Men that wanted to do the right thing, they wanted to work, they wanted to care, and they had no power to help their kids, no power to answer their wives, no power to save their very children. It's just a replay of the way the, way the world works. This is verse five, chapter five, this is the way the world works. Matt, what does that have to do with us? We're not enslaving kids down in the kid's wing, right? Sell them for goldfish crackers. No, we're not. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, notice this. You can do God's will and it can get dark. The people that decided, hey, this is God's call on us to rebuild the wall, to make new gates, they called, they did it, they sacrificed, and things got even harder and more difficult for them, okay? That's what happened to these guys right here. You can do God's will and it can get dark. In America, we almost have to invent hardship because it's not really hard for us. But do you know right now across the world, there are men and women, our brothers and sisters that are doing God's will and it's hard for them? Sometime this week, simply Google the persecuted church or look at the website, the persecuted church or Voice of the Martyrs. And what these websites do is they just are constantly looking across the globe at what is happening to our brothers and sisters in the faith, those that are doing God's will, and it gets hard. So when I was writing this message, I just Googled, went to a website that I go to, and went on there, and the lead article was this, the Sunday before in Burkina Faso, 44 of our brothers and sisters, because they obeyed God's will, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, even more as you see that day. They went to church that day and 44 of them were murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That happens every week, every month, every year. People doing God's will, and it getting dark. Number two, what's the power behind this problem? Greed, right? The power behind this problem is greed. It's not money, money's neutral. It gets misquoted all the time, right? Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. So Ed Sheeran, just a, uh, a while back, was, you know, that famous singer, was quoted as saying, money's the problem. No, right? It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, right? Don't worry, I'll straighten out Ed Sheeran tonight when I talk with him. No problem. It's the overdrive for it. It's where you'll sacrifice people or principle or whatever it is because you're saying, I need 
more money. I want more money, more money, more money. I'll use COVID-19 hardship to get more money. Because I think ultimately there are only two philosophies by which you deal with money. Philosophy number one is this, you love money and use people to get more. Philosophy number two is you love people and you use money to bless others. Those are your two giant philosophies and they're driven by very different spirits behind them, okay? So when I think about this, I have to be honest with myself. In America, we're not poor. Do you know that? In America, we're not poor. So a couple years ago, a team of us went over to Nairobi uh, to Pastor Douglas. He has a church called New Song Chapel. And you guys, because of your generosity, we've supported that church now for, I think, 14 years. And it's a church that's in the Makuru slums, one of the poorest places on the earth. So just to give you kind of a vision of what's happened, I grabbed a couple pictures from our trip. So, uh, so that's kind of our crew right there. Uh, that's in the Makuru slums. Uh, this next picture shows us this is the only picture we had of Douglas. So Douglas is in the front right there. That's Jason, our missions pastor. But that's Pastor Douglas. He's one of my heroes. He's an amazing, he's just unbelievable. He, he has had opportunities to get married and, and start a family. He is, he's like getting married this year, but he's given up about 20 years to ministry saying, I can't get married because the work is too big. My like, bro, you are my hero, right? And this last picture, he, th- this to me is, you have this beautiful image bearer of God in a very bad spot. And that creek is exactly what you would think that creek is. It's the one that you're up at without a paddle. That's what that creek is, okay? There's no indoor plumbing in this place. That's what the whole place is. That's, that's poor, okay? We're not poor. 60% of the world's population does not have indoor plumbing. In America, you and I, we are kings and queens. Do you know that? I'll prove it to you. I'll prove you're a king because every one of us, when we go into our bathroom, we have a throne. (laughs) Right? That proves it. When you flush your toilet, just say, I am a king. Okay. All right? And the big issue with Nehemiah right here, Nehemiah 5 is this. It's what good is a rebuilt city without a holy people? We're building these walls and we're putting up these gates to keep evil out, but guess what? It's on the inside of us. It's already in us. What good is a rebuilt city without a renewed people? We're putting lipstick on a pig, right? We're putting Band-Aid on cancer. It's really a a foreshadow of chapter 13 where we see the, the end of Nehemiah. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, here's his response. He gets angry, he takes counsel, and he has a come to Jesus moment, right? First of all, verse six. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He's angry. Is that okay? I think if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Like, give me the prescription you're on. Because if you're paying attention, yeah, you should be angry. Nehemiah's like, how in the world would I ever want a pretty city full of these petty kind of people? He is ticked off. There are acts of evil that should make you and me our blood boil. Human trafficking, greed, business practices like this, it should make our blood 
boil, right? We should be angry. We have this capital that we're supposed to use in righteous anger, but you know what most of our anger gets used for? Ourselves. Driving. I'll admit that. So uh, with this on, I'm not supposed to drive. So now, um, everywhere I go, someone has to drive me. And for 35 years, I've always been the driver. I've always had a car. I take people. I just drive. I'm the driver. You can ask my wife. We'll go to San Diego. I will drive straight hours, 12 straight hours, and drive from Grants Pass to San Diego. No problem. I'm the driver. 35 years. Now, I'm the passenger. Now, I go out here and wait for my ride. People go, hey, what are you doing? Waiting for my ride. I feel like I'm in middle school. My mom's here. I got to go. Bye, guys. Right? It's just ridiculous. And then I get in a car, and then I just can't believe how some people drive. I'm like, what in the world? What are we waiting for, the rapture? Go already. Come on. There's a school bus. Get out. Go fast. You got behind the school bus. How in the world? Why are you taking this route? Is is your phone set on the scenic route? Just get there already. So God had a little talk with me a couple days ago. Said, Matt, you're an idiot. People are taking their time to drive you somewhere because you can't, and you're complaining? Oh, man. We have this brilliant capital of righteous anger, and we just squander it on all these stupid things. Yeah, Nehemiah has every right to be angry right here. And there's lots of things that should get believers angry, but we're too busy with petty stuff. He's angry, but notice what he does next. Verse seven. I took counsel with myself. How good is that? Nehemiah stops. Okay, let me think about this. I think it was Thomas Jefferson 200 plus years ago. He's the guy that said this. He said, when you get angry, stop and count to 10. When you get very angry, Stop and count to 100. Stop, take counsel, figure it out, pray, listen, think, and then talk. That's righteous indignation. So Jesus, he got mad, you know that? James talked about it on Easter. He has this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He goes to the temple, gets to the temple, turns around and leaves. Why? Because he saw stuff there that he did not like. Money changers, abuse of people, people being obstructed from worship of the Father, no prayer ascending. But Jesus turned around and left. For 24 hours, he left. And then when he returned, he brought a whip and opened a can of whip temple. But he waited 24 hours, prayed, thought about it. What's the best way to address this situation, right? So Dan Siegel is famous for this. It's the flipped lid that when you and I flip our lid, when we're angry, we're no longer thinking. It's all emotion. It's all fight or flight. And when you're fight or flight, not good. He said it takes a minimum of 20 minutes to get all your hormones from fight and flight kind of flushed out of your system and come back to like, okay, 20 minutes of taking counsel, 20 minutes of praying before you have that conversation with your son or your spouse, 20 minutes of thought before you send that text back. 
20 minutes or maybe 24 hours before you respond to that email or to that letter, just taking time and taking counsel so that you'll see it better and respond righteously. Yeah, I get angry, but don't sin. How? Take time to take some counsel. But then thirdly, he has what I call a come to Jesus moment. So end of verse seven, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each of you, from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, this thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out my fold of the garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Come to Jesus moment. Dad, you ever have family meetings? Just, hey, everybody, get together. Usually it's, hey, towels, hang up your towels. Pick up your socks. Respect your mom. Quit teasing each other. Yeah, come to Jesus moment. Got to a point where my kids are like, really, dad? Can we like shovel out the septic system instead? Like, all right. Don't really want to do this. All right, right? So Nehemiah right here is having a come to Jesus moment. And number one, he says this, repent. You're taking interest from your brothers. Exodus 22, 25 says, that's illegal. You're not to do that. Don't charge interest to your brothers. And so what Nehemiah says is, number one, repent. You're breaking the law. Be just. But Nehemiah doesn't end there. He takes them a step further. He says, restore, verse 11. Give it all back. In fact, not only give it all back, give back what you've made off that land. Like, this is radical right here. This is way more than the law. There's not a chapter in verse for what Nehemiah's asking right here. He's saying, I want you to be more. I want you to cancel the mortgage. I want you to give the farm back. I want you to vineyard back. I want you to give the kids back. Nehemiah is saying, listen, Jerusalem. I want you to live differently. I want you to be a different kind of community than the way the world works. I want you to be different. More than the law, this is love. Because this rebuilt city must be inhabited with a renewed people 
or we'll just be whitewashed tombs. That's all we'll be. We're just painting dry rot. And I love their response. I love that their sorry is greater than their sin. You know when someone is truly repentant, when their sorry is greater than their sin. These guys went way above. Like, I love this chapter. It's brilliant. Because what it's saying is the big message of the gospel, that I think believers are to be people that care for one another, right? It's not the government's job. It's not somebody else's job. It's, listen, as believers, we care one for another. How do people know that we're Jesus' disciples? Because we show up in church? Because we have a King James Version Bible? Because we got a bumper sticker? No, because we live out love. Because we do things that are so radically different than the, world, the way the world does it. You'll know. They'll know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. How we treat each other. I love that. And the motive, what's the motive? He gives two, mo- two motives in verse nine. Fear of God and witness to the nations. What's the fear of God here? Don't you fear God? He says, you guys are doing this? Don't you fear God? Well, the context is real clear. Don't you know that that brother, that sister that you're taking advantage of, that you now own their children and they're slaves for you, don't you know they have a heavenly father? Don't you fear him? They had a dad, and their dad will beat up your dad, and you should be afraid of that. That there should be a healthy fear. Wait a second. They have a heavenly father, and he sees how I'm treating his kids, and that matters. And then number two, it's a witness. How, you, how we live right here is a witness to the world. James 2 puts it like this. Faith without works is dead. There should be a demonstrable difference between you and me. Not, hey, well, I'm just doing it like the world does it. Well, that doesn't fly. Faith without works is dead. That there are ways the world works. I understand it. But it doesn't mean I have to do it that way. Do you know today, who pays the highest interest rates? Although there's a law right now that may be moving that. But who right now pays the highest interest rates? Poor people, right? Because it's the way the world works. Hey, we're taking a gamble on you. We're not sure if you're gonna pay it back, so you gotta pay a little bit more, right? It makes it more difficult for poor people. That's the way the world works. I'm not anti that. I understand it. I see it. That's just the way the world works. But is that the way we're supposed to work? Or could we start doing stuff differently? So back in 2017, we started having these conversations like, hey, we got these really hardworking, good families at Edgewater that are stuck in rent cycles. And I would sit and talk with them. I'd be like, man, why don't you buy a house? They're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> the houses I can't afford, cash people come in and they buy that house because the, the banks won't loan on them and I can never save up enough money to ever get a down payment because I'm paying $1,500, $1,700 a month in rent. Because I'm like, bro, you can take that $1,700 and buy a great house. Yeah, I can't get out of this cycle. So we just noticed, man, they're stuck in these cycles. That's just the way the world works, right? You make, your pay- whatever, you're stuck. So we started thinking, what if we did something? And it's called home bridging. Home bridging birthed out of that idea. We don't want to do it like the world does it. What if we get five families that are Edgewater that, man, because of God's blessing on them and their stewardship of what God has given to them, and they've become financially secure, what if 
five families said, we will pay one-fifth cash for a house for you. So we'll buy it, cash is king, we can buy that house. We'll get that house, and then we'll use volunteers and your work, and we'll come in there, and we'll rebuild this house, and then you can jump in, move into that house, you're out of the rent cycle, and within three years, we want you to get a loan on that house and pay back those five families. That's how home bridging started. And man, brilliant. One of the funnest, I know it's not a good English word, but it's a good ministry word. One of the funnest ministries. One of the best witnesses outside of this church that we've ever started. And it's had to morph and change because times are morphing and changing. But the heart behind it is this heart right here. How do we do things differently? We know that's how the world works. But that doesn't have to be the way the church works. That we don't go by the law. We go by love. How do we do things differently? Like it matters. We want to invest in the kingdom and our brothers and sisters. And I love, I love this fact. This is an ugly chapter, is it not? Greed, famine, broken homes, human trafficking, right? It's a bad chapter. This is a win for the devil, right? He's like, brilliant, you guys are doing my job for me. I'm gonna get a pedicure. You guys just take care of it. Like it's a brutal chapter. But look at the end of verse 13. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The cries of outrage from the wives in verse one are changed to cries of praise in verse 13. This is Judo theology. What the enemy wants to use for evil to steal and to kill and to destroy. God is able to take a Nehemiah, one man, one man, one man to change a city. One man to change the outcries into praise. Brilliant. Never forget that. That God can use any one of us in your Nehemiahs to change the cries of outrage and anger and human trafficking and garbage into cries of praise. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's a biblical response. Get angry. Take counsel. And then have a come to Jesus moment. And then now Nehemiah is just going to say, and here's how I live my life. Because it's very important as leaders, and each of us are leading a certain way, in a home, in a business, in a neighborhood, it's very important how leaders live because people are watching us. We're the only Bible most people will read. So look at what Nehemiah says. This is my radical lifestyle. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from nations that were around us. 
Now, what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. We have a saying at Edgewater, boys take, men give. And there's plenty of boys with beards. There's plenty of 50-year-old boys. Nehemiah right here, verse 15 says, I wasn't a taker. The previous governors, man, they taxed and they taxed, and then their servants did the same thing. It was a double, triple, quadruple hit. I tax them, then my servant taxed them, and his servant taxed them, and ah, they took advantage of their position politically. I'm so glad as a country we've outgrown this thing. <laughs> right? So I just looked at this. I looked at it, politicians, both sides of the aisle, senators, House of Representatives, make about $200,000 a year. Most of them within about 10 years are worth about $100 million. How do you do the math on that? How in the world do you do the math on that? Someone's taking advantage of their position. It doesn't matter where you're at. It's just, hey, that's the way the world works. This is the way the world works. You take advantage of your position. Your servants take advantage of their position. It just goes down, and finally, it's the bottom rung that gets stepped on. They're supposed to be public servants. I'm not sure if they are. Nehemiah says, I didn't do that. You know why? Fear of the Lord. The first fear of the Lord is, hey, look out, they got a dad. This fear of the Lord is personal. This is Nehemiah saying, one day the books will be opened. One day, 1 Corinthians 3, I will stand before the Bema seat of Jesus and the ledger will be open. Not for my salvation, I'm saved by grace, by God alone, but how I stewarded what God has given to me. One day the books will be open. Is it wood, hay, and stubble? Or is it gold, silver, and jewels? One day it will matter. Lord, how did I steward my life? Fear of the Lord. How to use my talents. I'm not a taker. More than that, verse 18, I'm a giver. He feeds 150 people a day for 12 years. If you had to feed 150 people today, what would you do? I'd be like, hey, we're fasting today. We're going to pray and fast. Join me. <laughs> Beans and rice, baby. What does he do? I killed an ox, a bunch of sheep, a bunch of birds, and brought in the best wine. Man, this guy's generosity is off the charts. Millions of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars, Nehemiah spends on these people. Why? He goes, ah, I don't want to be a burden to them. I want to bring them joy. I don't want to put my thumb on them. I love that. I think you can tell a lot more about a man or a woman's spirituality by looking at their checkbook than looking at their prayer book. That how I spend my money tells me my priorities, doesn't it? If I've got all this fishing gear and all this hunting gear and all this snowboarding gear and all this other, but I can't take my wife out on a date, what'd that just say about my priorities? Right? Bank accounts don't lie. They just don't lie. They tell the truth. So I had this book. I found it interesting. 
It's by Arthur C. Brooks, which <clears throat> he's one of those guys that you just read everything he does. And the book is called, Who Really Cares? Like, look at the world, there's needs and there's, you know, we all see issues, who really cares? And there was this comment in it that I found fascinating. This is the quote. People who favor government income redistribution are significantly less likely to donate to charity than those who do not. You know why? Not my problem. Right? It's the government's problem. It's their problem. I don't have to do anything about that. That's what that whole book was. Who really cares? And there's proof. Bernie Sanders, he's an income redistribution guy. Not picking on him. That's just his philosophy. 2016, he made a million bucks. Guess how much he gave? 10,600. About 1%. Perhaps you remember this in 2008 when, when Joe Biden was pegged to be the, the vice president for Obama. Well, what happens in that moment is all of a sudden the books are open, right? The ledger's open. How'd you do? So they went back 10 years with Jill and Joe Biden. How generous have you been in the last 10 years? They added up everything they gave in those previous 10 years. The amount? $3,690. They were giving away about $370 a year. Although they believe in income redistribution, but what happens the moment you believe that it's, it's their problem over there. I'm not trying to pick on politics. I'm saying whatever you believe will be how you become and how you live. If I think it's the government's job to take care of people, I'm not gonna help them. Nehemiah could have said, it's Artaxerxes' problem, not my problem. He owns this place, it's his problem. Nehemiah didn't do that. Because Nehemiah said, no, this is a God's people problem. This is an opportunity for God's people to witness to the world that the way we do things is so different. We don't live that way. We are generous. We're a people that believe in generous and, ju- and generous justice. How can I be the solution? Not how can they be the solution, how can I be it? I love what John Wesley said. He said, as Christians, we should make as much money as we can. And take the talents, take what God has given you, apply them, man, be great at what you're doing. Make as much money as you can. Save as much money as you can. Be wise with your money. And then he said, be as generous as you can. Man, that's the philosophy of Nehemiah. He took the talents God had given him, the opportunities that God had given him. He made a ton of money. He must have saved it well because when he goes to Jerusalem, he's not making that cash anymore. And he takes the money that he had saved when he worked hard in the king's palace and now spends it on 150 people for 12 years to support them. How incredible is that? I love that. It's all of us looking around. Where's the broken walls? Where's the burned gates? And how can I help rebuild those spots? I love that this church is full of those kind of people. There's a ton of Nehemiahs here. Like I told you this a couple years ago, I went up to a kid's high school camp and I went up there and had a great time, 150, there's 150 people up there. And a bunch of you took boats up there. And this one family took their brand new boat up there. And this boat, you can just about buy a house for what you buy this boat for. And it wasn't coming on time, so they actually drove out to Tennessee, picked it up, and drove it back here to get it to high school camp. So the boat's there, and they go check it out. Unbelievable boat. It's like a jet cockpit in there. It's got a hide-a-bed underneath it. It's autopilot. You push a button, it makes a 20-foot wave behind it. Like, it's unreal. It'll make you dinner. Like, dinner. It'll make you dinner. 
And I'm like, what are you guys doing? You're going to let high schoolers on this thing? I said, if I owned this boat, I wouldn't let me on this boat. And this was their answer. Now, this is what we bought it for. We bought it to bring it to camps like this for kids that don't get the opportunity to go out for them to have the best time ever and to see Jesus' generosity through people like us. Oh, praise God for that. I think about every Sunday, your guys' generosity, it's humbling to me because I'm a prideful man and I want to make my own way and then you guys are just so generous like every Sunday to support this place. I could come up here every Sunday and say, thank you, message done because you guys are so generous, right? When Rogue Christian Academy, when we started announcing it and talking about Rogue Christian Academy, I stopped counting the number of people who said, hey, tell me when, because I want to support this financially. Tell me when, I want to support. I know that there are single moms that have sons and daughters that they're going to want to get into this school because they see burned gates and broken down walls and they're trying to stop them up, but they're powerless. Verse five, I'll be their power. Thank you for that. And there's opportunity now, right? If you're wanting to give to RCA, they have the, the gift of receiving. No doubt about it. Love that. But motive matters. In verse 19, here's my translation of verse 19. He says this. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Here's Matt Heavily translation. Nehemiah wanted to see God's smile. I want to see my dad smile. I want to see him smile and for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, all of us should want that. I want to see my heavenly father smile. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But hidden in this little text is a gem of the gospel. Because there's only two kingdoms. That's all there is. The old kingdom with the old governor is a taker. And his servants are takers. And they want to steal, kill, and destroy. Take, 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 take. Break your family up. Get your kids involved in stuff they should not be involved in. Busted up, addicted. That's the old kingdom. Take from you. But there's a new king, a new kingdom. And he's a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but they'll have everlasting life. The king that says, come eat at my table at my expense, my feast, and I'll pay for it. That's the gospel. That's what you see right here, a new king with a new kingdom who says, you're gonna feast at my expense all day, every day. That's the gospel. 